getting somewhere else is an essential form of thinking. It changes the way we view the world and the way we view our own homes. That's why we're here. We're here to investigate the stories in our own backyards. To talk to the people who live here. And work here, volunteer here, love here, restore here. Also that we can travel back outside that place and see it from a different perspective. I'm Abby Newhouse. And I'm Melissa Wade. And we're here to think and investigate and share stories about the varied places throughout our world, up close and from a distance. In this episode, we take a tour of Pennsylvania's coal region to see lands reclaimed and mountains of refuse turned into power. All while we ask ourselves the hard questions, like what scars has the coal industry left behind? And what exactly should we focus on saving? Okay, so how did you come across this like mine land reclamation project? Well, I wasn't really looking for a story on coal. I learned that crypto, like Bitcoin, is mined. Mined. I just can't wrap my head around it. Like, physically mined, digitally mined. How does it look? (laughs) I mean, all the other things that are mined, diamonds, coal, silver, all those other precious metals, are dug out of the ground. But not crypto. Not crypto. No, it is mined by computers solving number problems. I don't, I don't get it. I don't. You know, but it's just so hard to imagine. And so, yeah, when we talk about this, it's very cerebral. It's very heady. And I get lost. Well, it's just like ownership doesn't feel like something that can exist on the internet to me. Like, and maybe that's an antiquated view of ownership since we're moving towards digital spaces and digital cities and digital money. And I would be sent an NFT and I'd want to print it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And what's confusing is that people buy NFTs. It's just like permanently there, but somebody owns it and they can just decide if they want to resell it. I guess it's an environmentally friendly beanie baby (laughs) because if you buy a bunch of Beanie Babies, then you're paying for them to create those Beanie Babies, put them in plastic, ship them to you, and then you, you store them for a long time and think, I'll resell these. And then you have to put them in a box and ship them to someone else. So maybe we should champion the NFT as an environmentally friendly Beanie Baby investment. But it is funny <laughs> that you bring that up with environment because... That also feels tangible and intangible in a certain way, right? Like when you get a packaged Beanie Baby, then that's what you see is the package. And and you can, you know, think to yourself, this is plastic. This is bad for the environment or whatever. But also NFT and Bitcoin mining and all of this stuff happening on the Internet is also not good for the environment, which I think is something we found out right through this whole process. A Bitcoin, I thought there's some guy out there just typing in some zeros and ones and boom, money. (laughs) Sounds great. You can create it just out of thin air, but no. Okay, so what you need are these large power plant size buildings full of 
computers that are solving complicated math problems. And when they solve a problem, they create a Bitcoin. And that work of mining the right answer puts value into the Bitcoin. Wow. Okay. Okay. That makes some sense to me. Okay. But these power plant sized Bitcoin mining operations usually have like three employees and they use just as much energy as like the country of Portugal in one year. Ooh. Yeah, that's terrifying. It would take nine years of your household's equivalent electricity usage to mine a single Bitcoin. Oh my gosh. Well, I think it relates to electricity, which is how coal comes back into play. These crypto mining operations that are opening up in Northeastern America are using coal and coal refuse to power themselves. But also when I turn on the lights, I'm not, I'm not consciously thinking, oh, I got this electricity from a coal fire plant. I'm not thinking about where that electricity comes from. Electricity is an enigma. It is this mystery that makes it so easy for us to just continue to turn on the light, turn on the fan, and not think about the effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just pops up in the speed of light, <laughs> which is also incomprehensible to me. Back in the day, it, it changed everything, everything. And now for us, it's just there. Right. These coal mining companies built these towns, built this country. And as they go bankrupt, they leave behind trash, basically. And we learned how that trash can be cleaned up, how it can be used, and how that land could then be revitalized and turned into parks and gardens and places where homes can be built. Yeah, it's actually a beautiful outcome, we hope. But there's always going to be something else. There's always going to be, you know, this is centuries, centuries of work, of policy. And we were just lucky enough to see this one little piece of it and maybe what it could be going forward. farmhouse in Pennsylvania, the one I grew up in, had a coal and wood-burning furnace. It was this old iron beast in the basement that I feared until I was about 12. I mean, the whole basement was terrifying. Dirt floors, cans of jarred vegetables, some unrecognizable, flittering bare light bulbs hanging from the ceiling. I think at one point there was a pig leg left behind in the room where my uncle would butcher his own livestock. In the winter though, that furnace was always hungry and someone always had to go down and feed it. I have these fuzzy memories of driving passenger side in my uncle's pickup truck, which he pulled out to the side of the road along a tall cliff. We'd get out, each with a bucket, and pick up black rocks. Only the glittery ones, my uncle would tell me, to take back home and feed the beast. 
I hadn't realized until now, after this trip to Pennsylvania's coal region, that those rocks were coal refuse. Rocks falling from piles up high on the hillside after being discarded by the company stripping the earth for the good stuff. That's why they were left behind and no one really cared that we were picking them up. Coal has been extracted from Pennsylvania earth since the 1700s, fueling the Industrial Revolution, beginning the colonial iron industry, and Carnegie steel mills in the 1800s, coming to power America's insatiable need for power. And even though PA is still the fourth largest coal producer in the country, following Wyoming, West Virginia, and Kentucky, that production is nothing close to what it used to be. In 2008, production peaked at over 1,500 million short tons. By 2016, 25% of the industry was in bankruptcy, and the numbers were down to 728 million short tons. That's a cut in half. When it comes to the workforce, the numbers are dropping even faster as the industry becomes more mechanized. Over the last 10 years, the number of miners employed in the Appalachian region alone was also cut in half, from 8,200 miners in 2010 to 4,800 in 2020. You might remember seeing these miners protesting for their jobs in the news recently. Who's Last June, 180 coal miners working at the Monongalia County Coal Mine received notice of their permanent layoff from the Pennsylvania Department of Labor and Industry starting the following month. The mine's owner and operator, Murray Energy, filed for bankruptcy in 2019. Before it died, Murray was the fourth largest coal mining operation in America. Yet it was just one on a long list of struggling coal producers in America as utility companies switched to cheaper natural gas or other renewable energies. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky has called this the war on coal. Well, my colleague Rand Paul had it right. A war on coal is a war on all of Kentucky. I like to remind people that even if you don't live in a county that has coal jobs, you do turn the lights on. And Jimmy Rose had it right. Coal keeps the lights on. Without coal, America would be in the dark. And we're not going to let that happen. Many blame former President Obama and his clean power plan. Unveiled in 2015, Obama's clean power plan set the first ever national standards on carbon pollution from power plants to not only help reduce climate change, but to reduce the soot and smog that cause health risks for those living near and working in plants. Stanford scientists say the plan promoted cleaner energy production, like that from natural gas, and would have made it difficult to build new coal-fired power plants. Would have. Yep. In 2016, the Supreme Court blocked the plan with a 5-4 vote, granting a request by 27 states led by big coal producer West Virginia. The plan was then appealed completely in 2017 by former President Trump. Obama has decimated the coal industry, decimated it, and we're going to bring the coal industry back, folks. Two years after pulling out of the Paris Agreement on climate change mitigation, the Trump administration replaced Obama's clean power plan with the affordable clean energy rule. 
which resisted setting clear limits for carbon emissions, but rather allowed state flexibility on how each regulated their power plants. This was done to win the war on coal, right? Yet even with slight increases in production in 2019, the decline in the coal industry didn't see lasting positive change during Trump's years in the White House or after. In 2008, there were over 1,200 coal mines producing and supplying coal in America. The EIA reports that by 2020, that number was down to only 370 active mines, with 28% of those having already announced plans to close by 2035. President Biden has again trumpeted bringing back coal, as the administration has agreed to take on new leases for coal mining and plant operations. Still, his plans also invest in the areas where coal miners have been abandoned. In fact, over $260 million in existing resources have already been mobilized by the Department of the Interior to support abandoned mine land reclamation, predominantly in Appalachia. This is the part we didn't quite understand and wanted to investigate further. This $260 million for reclamation. What does it mean to reclaim an abandoned coal mine? Coal mine reclamation involves the rehabilitation of land after coal mining operations there have ceased. The work involves restoring the surface to acceptable pre-mining conditions by contouring the earth, removing equipment, plugging wells, removing waste, and planting grasses and other vegetation. As stated by the Department of the Interior, abandoned mines pose risks to people and the environment. They can contaminate groundwater, emit toxic waste, and cause injury when unsteady infrastructures collapse. So when Pennsylvania's governor, Tom Wolf, announced in February that Pennsylvania had been awarded $244.9 million from President Joe Biden's bipartisan infrastructure law to clean up abandoned mines across the Commonwealth, we knew we had to see what that meant. We traveled to visit the work in progress. It was, I think it stopped operating in the late 70s, but the land just became vacant, you know, or idle after that and there weren't, they weren't taking any materials out. Not a whole lot of um, work. There was no mining going on on here since then. It just became the nice. abandoned piles. We started this in 2017. We put the grant in. I think we got our contract in like 2018. So it's been four years. That's right. We visited a site that died in the 70s and hadn't been cleaned up until 47 years later. When all available coal was extracted from a mine site like this one in Sawyersville, operators would then move to another area and leave the original mine abandoned. Over 5,000 coal sites in Pennsylvania, equating to about 250,000 acres of land, have been left this way, with dangerous high walls, open shafts, and wasted landscapes overloaded with piles of coal waste that radiate heat into the atmosphere and can catch on fire. There is a ghost town in the state called Centralia that tells this tale. It was left abandoned after residents set fire to some rubbish piled up on top of an old strip mine, which lit an underground seam of coal in 1968. 
the fire is still burning. Some say the fire could keep burning for another 500 years. When unable to successfully put that fire out, the government gave up and decided to move everyone out of Centralia instead, condemning the town and removing its zip code. A sign at the edge of town reads, warning, danger, underground mine fire. Walking or driving in this area could result in serious injury or death. Dangerous gases are present. Ground is prone to sudden collapse. Environmental scientist Emily Bernhardt of Duke University told Allegheny Front that the damage could last a millennia. Could. So it's important that there are people doing something about it now. To date, Pennsylvania has rehabbed more than 91,000 acres of these sites, but still has over 150,000 to go. In Pennsylvania's Washington Valley, Abby and I met up with Bobby Hughes, executive director of the Eastern Pennsylvania Coalition of Abandoned Land Mine Reclamation. We wanted to meet here first at Trip Street Community Park here. We're in Suarezville Borough in Luzerne County, and we're in the Wyoming Valley, which is a part of the, the Northern Anthracite coal regions. And then the river is in between, the Susquehanna River is in between. And then we have all these tributaries that feed the Susquehanna in both the Wyoming Valley here, so this area over here, which is across the street, that right now we're gonna walk up, we'll see a little bit of the, the grading work that's going on in the excavation of the coal silt. So we're gonna see how they're excavating that down now, right down to ground. And they're hauling material out of here with the grant that we got, um, which was $4 million over several years. It's being leveraged by another $8 million in private investment from Olympus Power. But seven and a half of the 15 or so acres is the first phase that we're really The site sits on. in the center of the town, across the road from a very small park, behind a cropping of trees. We walk through the trees to face the piles of coal refuse. Piles. That word sounds too small. These were black hills, high enough to consider part of a mountain range. The community has not, probably hasn't seen the other houses for 60 years, for about six decades. So now they can, they're actually seeing through the trees and they're seeing across here because this material was so high you couldn't see over there. Now they're seeing it. Why so much debris? The earlier technologies really didn't sort the coal all that well. I mean, on the conveyor systems and stuff like that, or you had breaker boys that would pick the coal and if there was inefficiencies in the way they sorted the coal from the slate rock or the, the shales and stuff, you still had anthracite being mixed in. And so that's what gets kind of uh, sorted in places like this. And they have different screening uh, devices. I think we'll see around the top side uh, where they, they actually do that to be able to separate the stuff. Because obviously the coal and the silts that are the, the higher BTU energy value is what they want to burn at the cogen plants and to generate that electricity. The rock takes a lot more to burn uh, and the shales and stuff because it's just overburdened. It's rock in between the layers of the coal. In the past, coal that was very low in heat content, it's called low BTUs, was considered undesirable and was discarded by coal companies and their workers. This coal waste, not really rock like I've been saying, but comb or slag or gob, is made up of minerals like shale and sandstone and quartzite 
and other conglomerates pulled from the ground along with the desirable coal. Right now, the coalition, in partnership with Olympus Power, Keystone Reclamation, and the owner of the property, Pagnotti Enterprises, is working to remove this waste coal, which, like Bobby said, isn't all waste. Later in the day, Bobby and Abby and I traveled south, following Christy Sweeney, the Director of Finance and Public Affairs of ARIPA, the Appalachian Region Independent Power Producers Association, in order to tour a specialized power plant using this waste coal to provide electricity to Pennsylvania residents. More on that later. For now, we jump in Bobby's truck and ride out onto the fields of Black Rock, beside big mountains still needing to be moved. And that's why we're here having to take this stuff and we got the grant to be able to incentivize that hauling and transportation of the material to get it more than 50 miles away, because that's how far we have to go to get it to the plant. There was no other place for it. This stuff, it, you don't push it in a hole, it's already in the hole. Uh, the purpose of the grant right now is to kind of get it leveled, get the material out of here, bring it so that it's, it's reclaimed in a sense that we could grass it and seed it and get it to where you'll be able, they'll be able to decide as, decide as a community if they want to go after another grant for Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, a Keystone grant that could put in the parks yeah. elements and stuff uh, for the community. At the Sawyersville site, the Eastern Pennsylvania Coalition for Abandoned Mine Reclamation, seven of which will hopefully be returned to the community and used as public park lands. Bobby says they really only have enough money to get the whole thing started. The projected total cost of removing the 500,000 tons of coal and rock waste off of just 25 of the 55 acres, 12 million. I'm guessing then the other half of reclamation will cost just as much. But cleaning up that 55 acres will bring back vegetation, raise property values, clean the air, improve water quality in nearby Abrams Creek, and overall encourage a healthy ecology for the earth and the people of Swoyersville Borough. In essence, cleaning up this waste rejuvenates the town. And to boost a coal town in coal country is doing what many protesting miners are asking for. You could say that coal built these towns. I mean, Swoyersville was named after coal mine owner John Henry Swoyer. It was the town's chief industry until the mine operations closed in the 1950s and 60s. Coal companies made sure that there were no rival energy companies or industry bases for their workers. Coal giants had the power to block legislature, to block industrial initiatives and other product bases to maintain their monopoly over the area. But when that central industry dies, the towns they built end up having far less because of their monopoly. There is this idea among those fighting for miners that if the EPA would just drop its pesky regulations, then the coal industry would return to its glory. Experts though question that glory. In the 2017 documentary, From the Ashes, West Virginia State Senator Jeff Kessler speaks about the industry. You know, if I walk into a room and ask folks what's been the most dominant industry in the history of the state, I mean, universally, they'll yell, coal. And I'll say, oh, they're war on coal, and they'll yell, hell yeah. 
Then I asked him, I said, well, assuming that's true, I said, let me ask you the, another question. Uh, during Cole's heyday, um, was West Virginia's economy in the top five, middle five, or bottom five of the national uh, economic ranking? And probably scratch their head and say, oh, probably in the bottom five. So we win the war on coal. Are you going to be in the top five, middle five, bottom five? And if the answer's still the bottom five, you know, why are we wasting so much time and energy trying to win a war that even if we win, we're dead last? Today, about 30% of electricity generated among American homes is powered by coal. But coal is the most highly pollutant power generator. 67% of the U.S. electricity sector's CO2 emissions are generated by coal. That's why some call coal dirty even if some call it beautiful. The black rocks, they do shimmer in the sun. When burned, they light up our homes. And in the streams running through the region, it burns red and stinks like rotten eggs. Bobby takes us down the road to stand next to one of these streams, at the edge of which water gushes up, like a powerful hose stuck down into the ground, pushing the water out. But this is, um what we call a borehole. And there's lots of these boreholes throughout the coal region. This one happens to be 42 inches in diameter. So that's a big hole. And that goes down, it's a casing that goes down into the mine workings about 250 feet. There was three of them, one here, one over there underneath that pile of rocks, and one underneath that pile of rocks over there. And then those two on the outside collapsed because the acid from the water ate away at the, the casing and it started collapsing in on itself. So for fear of that causing a backup of additional water underground in the mines here in the valley, they had to drill additional boreholes. When Hurricane Agnes hit in 1972, the area was completely flooded, the river up 43 feet in elevation, and residents feared the overrun mines would collapse, the ground would give way, and the towns would sink. If they we're going to let the water build up. It would have gone in everybody's homes and basements. So in 1974, the state DEP, Environmental Protection Agency, came in here three years before the surface mining law of 77, and they drilled these boreholes here to relieve the pressure of the water that was starting to accumulate and build up in elevation that would have otherwise caused billions of dollars of damages to the homes in this whole area. You don't want this water in your basement. We need aeration treatment systems like water treatment plants and such to allow us to have the iron drop out. Because when we test the pH of that water, it's about a 6.2 on a pH scale, which is very good. That means we don't have to add any chemicals. We don't have to treat the water in any other way other than remove the iron instead of putting it out in the stream channel here, which it does from here all the way down to where we just came in. You saw the orange at the bridge. It just right continues there. on all the way to the river for several miles and there's, there's no fish life, there's no aquatic life, there's no bug life uh, in the stream. The water underground doesn't all escape through that borehole. It continues down the valley, especially into lower economic areas. So they would send all the water underground to areas over here and discharge it so that it's polluting all the streams on this side of the valley. So every stream we've, we go in from here down the valley and even some up further, can't get to them today, but they're all orange, every one of them. So no fishing, no recreation, no swimming, no kayaking, no canoeing, no boat club, none of that stuff. 
that you might see further down in other watersheds, but we lose that whole recreational aspect, that whole quality of life issue, the, the enjoy, enjoyment of clean streams from this point down from all of this water. Underground coal seams disrupt water, drying up lakes and ponds and surrounding farms and landscapes. Now that all the easy to get coal has been removed from Appalachia, coal mining companies are blowing up the tops of mountains. Over 2,000 streams have been buried by the rocks falling down into the waters beneath the massacred mountaintops. The rock again dissolving its iron, magnesium, aluminum into the waterways, killing the organisms that live there. Dams like the one at Conowingo hold back this toxic sludge from main waterways, for now. In some other areas of the country, there isn't enough done to keep it out of household wells and faucets. Contaminated well water has been shown to increase the likelihood of birth defects, premature death among children, and cancerous tumors. Most companies avoid cleaning up their coal refuse and their coal ash because they can't afford to, while still making coal profitable. That's why we have the AML, the Band of Mineland funding, that comes in through the fees set on the coal companies that mine their per ton of coal. And then now we got this big boost in the infrastructure money that's coming in. And if we can get the fix like Senator Casey and Congressman Cartwright and uh, others, uh, McKinley and some other states as they co-sponsor different legislative pieces to bring more money in for the long-term operation and maintenance of treatment systems when they're built, then we'll be able to have another angle to pursue and take a look at because this water's been flowing since 1974, yeah. every single day. Yeah. I'm 50 years old and it's still not cleaned up. I've been coming here since I was a kid, going to McDonald's right across the way here, smelling this since I was a child. Yeah. So uh, that, we shouldn't have that in 2022, you know? Yeah. Really, we, we've got to find better ways to do these kinds of things. So that's, that's kind of the hope. The hope is cleared, reclaimed land. The hope is clean water, cleaner air, more parks, new industries. The hope is alive, and there is evidence of its transmutation into action. At the Askham Borehole AMD treatment system. And uh, that's where we're at now. And this aeration system is what's trying to clean up the, the water here. And this is the overflow water from where we were in South Wilkesbury. Same chemistry, 6.2, 6.3 water, 20 parts of iron, which is a lot, and then we're trying to remove that iron through the aeration process here. The Askham borehole, like the borehole we saw earlier that pushes water out from the flooded coal mines underground, feeds into and pollutes Nanticoke Creek and eventually the Susquehanna River below the city of Nanticoke. The Earth Conservancy constructed an AMD treatment system around this borehole a feature using the Maelstrom Oxidizer to treat the water. Okay, so that's a fancy name, right? Maelstrom Oxidizer. But it's a literal one. It's an oxidizing storm. The Maelstrom Oxidizer injects large amounts of air through a series of tubes, allowing the iron to drop out of the water more quickly so it can be filtered out rather than settling to the bottom and moving on through the waterways as silt. Less sludge, Less iron equals more animal and plant life and healthier water. So healthier, better, more jobs. This can come with the cleanup of coal. Earlier, Bobby mentioned Pennsylvania Representative Matt Cartwright, who introduced the Reclaim Act in 2016, 
and again just last year. RECLAIM is another acronym. It stands for Revitalizing the Economy of Coal Communities by Leveraging Local Activities and Investing More. If passed, the act would accelerate the release of $1 billion from the remaining unappropriated balance in the Abandoned Mine Reclamation Fund to revitalize coal communities impacted by abandoned mine lands and the recent decrease in coal mining. Another bill introduced into Congress, the Miners Protection Act, brought forth by Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, could provide payment for health benefits and pension funding to retired and laid off coal miners. This is more hope. This is more aid for those left stained and polluted by America's coal industry. We've all been blessed by the power sparkly coal provides, but not all of us have faced the wreckage it leaves behind. We have to witness it. We have to fund cleaning it up. We have to give back to the land we've taken so much from. So I didn't grow up around coal, but I did grow up near Kennecott Copper Mine. And I had kind of an on and off obsession with it as a kid. By obsession, I mean, I'd look up pictures once in a while and just stare at it, because <laughs> it's this weird, uncanny, layered hole in the Ochre Mountains near Salt Lake City, Utah. It looks like a portal to another dimension. I knew the mine existed, but knew basically nothing else about it. But just the other day, I learned something about how its many decades of use have affected Salt Lake City. Christopher Flavel wrote for the New York Times that the Great Salt Lake is shrinking due to a population influx, taking up all the water sources that should be feeding the Great Salt Lake. As the water recedes, the dirt emerges, and guess what's in it? Minerals and heavy metals, including arsenic, residue from nearby mines, will make the air toxic for residents of Utah in the coming years if they don't change course drastically. The amazing part about the Earth is in its paradox. Almost any time we uncover something beautiful, we also create unforeseen problems for future generations. I didn't consider that aspect for a long time. Even as we drove around the coal mountains where we first met Bobby and Christy in Pennsylvania, I reverted into a younger version of myself, this child who sees the leftovers of past systems that, yeah, did fuel our economy for so long. And I just assume someone else has it taken care of. Someone else is in charge, everything will be okay. I remember saying that to Bobby and he laughed. Nice try, Ab. But Bobby actually is doing something about coal refuse. I think he laughed because he understands the magnitude of the cleanup task. It will cost money, lots of money. It's work, it takes time. His nonprofit, Eastern PA Coalition for Abandoned Mine Reclamation, is small but mighty. And the power plant that reuses the coal refuse, Gilberton Power Company, 
was also only run by a handful of people. There are about 13 other plants working with coal refuse, but still, the amount of leftover waste is mind-boggling. There's a lot to be done and not enough people to do it. Before we traveled for this story, we were skeptical of the coal refuse plant's methods. We'd read a few articles about the plant's effectiveness, but we also came across a Pittsburgh NPR article that said, using coal waste as fuel does not eliminate the pollution. It moves the pollution. You're taking pollution that was going to be impacting the land and water and turning it into air pollution, end quote. This article was focusing mostly on how coal refuse could fuel crypto mining, which is another subject entirely, but it still got us reconsidering the plant's truth in advertising. But that's why we're grateful for the travel aspect of this show. We get to see how it works, not only hear about it. The people we talked to from the Appalachian Region Independent Power Producers Association, or ARIPA for short, they all mentioned how much of a difference it makes if people come out to see to understand more fully. So that's what we did. We ended our tour through Pennsylvania's coal region following Christy, who works with ARIPA, a nonprofit that focuses on using coal refuse as a primary fuel to generate electricity. They leave no stone unturned. While also cleaning up leftover coal refuse from the coal mountain sites Melissa mentioned, they work to restore that land into usable natural spaces. They also focus on cleaning up the water systems that have been infected with coal over the years, like that iron-heavy water we witnessed throughout Pennsylvania. They work with several different power plants, and after witnessing the issues coal refuse brings on, we drove out to Gilberton to see a solution to the problem. Whoa! We just came around that corner after seeing just forest and this iron oxide colored power plant rose up out of the nethers <gasps> you can see the, what is that liquid in there it's like rushing down from the walls it's everything the is iron oxide color yeah. everything it's the same orange as the as the streams we gathered around a table in a back meeting room where we met alex brush the general manager and jim reed the operations manager at gilberton power plant we learned all about how the plant is an environmental and economic win-win. In essence, Gilberton uses coal refuse to create electricity for neighboring towns in Pennsylvania. Before modern coal refuse burning technology, like the introduction of the circulating fluidized bed, there was no use for coal refuse piles. They weren't pure coal, but a mixture of rock and minerals that burned differently. So the introduction of this new technology gave these piles of refuse a destination. By removing coal refuse piles from the environment, reclaiming the sites and using the coal as an alternative fuel source, the coal refuse to energy industry provides a range of environmental, economic, and societal benefits to the state of Pennsylvania. We're the, um, the Gilbert Power Station. Uh, the plant's been commercial since 1988. The first megawatt produced was on uh, February 14th of 88. And then the plant officially went continuously commercial in October of 88. But typically, um, the facility burns about 2,000 to 2,200 tons a day of uh, waste material, continuously 365 days a year, uh, seven days a week. Material is sourced from a wide variety of different abandoned waste banks and dams. Gilberton's system is as closed loop as a human cycle can get. They gather the comb, purify the water that was being infected by that comb, and heat the refuse down to create energy. In this case, to make electricity. And there's a place for the leftover ash too. 
In other parts of the nation, toxic coal ash from old mining practices regularly infects drinking water with its terrible minerals. Like in North Carolina, where Duke Energy spilled coal ash into the Dan River, making it look chocolatey brown, weird globs of ash on the surface. Residents got sick and lived off of bottled water for years. Of course, Duke Energy refutes these claims. These companies always do. But Gilberton and other plants with a RIPA use a safer version of leftover ash from burning coal refuse to fill the ground on reclamation sites before it's covered with grass, or they use the ash to create new roads. They also use that mine water we talked about, you know, the orange iron mineral-filled water, to cool down the plant instead of drawing from water sources that are actually usable for residents. Everything has a purpose. Here's Alex explaining some aspects of the water. We're currently going through a minor permit modification to waive the mitigation fee because in 2021, uh, the SRBC, which is the Susquehanna River Basin Commission, decided to incentivize the use of AMD impaired water more. Hmm. So not every plant is for their cooling system. That's Not every plant is the same as yours, right? No, right. no there are some plants that use uh, municipal water, right. surface surface water, dam, reservoir dams, and I'm not sure what the other other facilities use. I, uh, we, we use quite a bit of mine water, I think, relative to, to, to the average. People don't want to acknowledge that we're connected by water, Bobby said. It's everywhere in humanity's past. Rivers were, and sometimes still are, dumping grounds for human-made waste. This is one thing I really have trouble wrapping my head around. Humans just dump things in the rivers. Toxic chemicals, human waste, garbage. When we were looking around at the iron-infested waters in Pennsylvania, we saw all sorts of trash in or near the rivers. A tire, a washing machine, metal slabs, regular old garbage, wrappers, straws. All of it dyed orange from the iron. As if the iron wasn't enough, why not pollute the water in other ways too? Sometimes I think people just don't know enough about where our drinking water comes from. It's somehow surprising that the river you pass daily could be so connected to your day-to-day -day living. Jim handed us a sheet of paper that had a diagram on it, accounting for every place the water, ash, or comb might go based on their system. We looked at all the different aspects to the plant, the steam drums, the bag house, the silo, the superheaters, the economizer, the deaerator, the cooling tower. <sighs> In the same way Gilberton works to create a use for the water, they are also working to make a closed loop process for the comb and the ash it creates after going through the plant. They reuse everything, treat it and run it through a filtration system to meet clean air regulations. Here's Alex explaining the process. We get technical here, guys. So the heavier stuff, we call it bottom ash, it bubbles closer to the bottom of the furnace chamber. The, the finer material will get higher up in the, in the combustor before it cascades back down the water walls. And the really fine stuff that's like the talcum powder like that, it gets overcome by draft because this furnace is kept at a negative pressure up here at the top of the unit. And the negative pressure draws that flue gas and fine ash out into the cyclonic separator, the cyclone, sends the material through a swirl, and the heavy material recirculates back to the bottom of the combustion chamber to transfer heat once again. Whereas the finer material is overcome by the draft and taken out and then across the back backpass. And then that uh, flue gas and ash mixture is separated by the particulate pulse jet bag house, um, which is 99.97% efficient. And what is exhausted is clear, clean gas, and what is retained is that fine ash.
And here's Alex on the air quality regulations, part of why they work so hard to put clean air back into the atmosphere. So basically we have uh, this, this permit that compiles all the rules that are applicable to us, uh, which there are many, and we have to demonstrate compliance on a continuous basis with all of them. And then we, we keep track of uh, sulfur dioxide, uh, NOx or uh, nitrogen oxides, CO, CO2, and then we also monitor the, the stack gas oxygen, stack, stack gas moisture. So there's there's a number of, of different operating parameters that we, we monitor all the time. One thing we're very proud of is uh, no matter where you stand around here and stare up at the stack, you're not going to see anything coming out of it. So mm. that's pretty much a continuous. Very clear. Yeah. So after hearing all this, we started to wonder about the articles we'd read that critiqued the plant for taking pollution from the ground and putting it back into the air. It didn't seem like that was what was happening at Gilberton. What we were seeing was a well-thought-out system that worked to use everything as best it could. Melissa, journalist extraordinaire, still made sure to ask. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking of an article I read where there was someone trying to whistleblow and say that you're just moving pollution from the ground into the air by using coal refuse. And so that doesn't seem to be the case if yeah. you're LEE. This seems very like closed looped here. Yeah, mm -hmm. my opinion is that's a, like an oversimplification of a process yeah. because you take a material that has environmental concerns, both from, an, if, if there's an abandoned pile left on the ground, you have ground concerns, water concerns, yeah. Sure, and once the pile is remediated, it's done. The, 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 the risk, the hazard, it's, it's gone. It's been taken care of in, in a responsible way. It's being uh, done so in accordance with regulations that were based on environmental science, not just a talking point of some activist group uh, that, that says that, you know, we're just moving the problem from one place to another. At least in the plant, this material is regulated, treated, morphed into something better. Gilberton has a specialized bag system to clean the air coming out of the stacks. We always emit carbon, produce waste. That's actually a natural thing too. We just need to produce less of it wherever possible. The EPA even made these coal refuse plants a subcategory of regular power plants after seeing its benefits in environmental cleanups as a key economic driver. This plant has never had a problem complying with any new requirement or rule. Um, and really didn't, and this is again a testament to how flexible uh, these boilers are, that, when they designed these things, they had performance guarantees of maximum emissions rates, and they were always so much lower and cleaner units um, than than what the original like, contract guarantees were and that kind of thing. So, And then as time has gone on, all the environmental regulations have gotten more and more stringent and more and more restrictive, and the facility's been able to demonstrate compliance with all of them pretty easily. Uh, the one exception to that was uh, the match rule uh, that came out in the Obama administration. Uh, and we still became compliant with it, but uh, we had to invest some money in, um, in, into some improvements. So we, we were able to able to not only get compliant, but be, uh, be designated as a low LEE, a low emitting EGU or electric generating unit, which is basically, uh, there's a threshold for compliance and then there's a threshold that's much lower to be considered a low emitter and um, did 12 consecutive quarters, at less than one half of the emissions limit and were classified as an LEE. So, uh, so both plants are, um, very uh, compliant with, with all rules and, and we're proud of that and we'd like to uh, obviously keep that that way. So Gilberton is actually doing really well with their emissions, lower than what is asked of them by different environmental and government regulations. After we talked in the meeting room, we put on hard hats and clear glasses and gathered in a small elevator that would take us to the roof of the plant. 
Up top, we looked around the hills and valleys of Frackville, Pennsylvania, also known as Mountain City, another former coal mining region, its community originally housing coal miners and their families. The mining in the area has ceased, and the refuse from that era is trucked in for Gilberton, which sends electricity back out to about 400,000 of its neighbors in Schuylkill County. We saw piles of comb across the horizon, tons of waste just asking to be used up by Gilberton. We also saw the benefits of Gilberton's system. So if you look at the power plant and then look to the right, you can see some green pastures oh, yeah. and there's some green steel buildings. That's actually a, a, a cattle grazing ranch uh, that's on reclaimed mine land. We were looking at the Reclaimed Mine to Farmland Initiative. One of Gilberton's affiliates, American Green, is working on now, using Gilberton's leftover ash. We watched through the plant at different levels, watching the burning comb pass by a tiny window into a large chamber, this molten lava-looking substance, in the process of converting to something we all need. So the material always goes back into the furnace. If you look in here, you can see the feed being added to it. Whoa! Like fire. The plant was hot. <laughs> I don't know how everybody could stand it. At one point, I thought I was done for. I was ready to lay down and submit to the heat. Luckily, everyone else is human too. And after Alex finished explaining why we were in that chamber, we got out of there quickly. Compared to what humans have done in the past to create energy, Gilberton and other plants like it deserve more attention. But again, these seams of people are small. While things are happening, there's so much more to be done and not enough money to do it. Both nonprofits are working with state and government agencies to get the funding they need to keep going. There just needs to be more funding. Older coal mining systems refused to acquiesce to the EPA's Clean Air Act, and so many closed throughout the Appalachian region. But coal refuse plants modernized technology to meet the standards set to protect our air. It's an example of something we've been fighting for, putting people above profit, just adhering to regulations only meant to keep people safe. The reclamation will provide more green spaces, allow for solar plants, and remove toxicity from our neighborhoods. We should question the processes we work with, new and old, because we should constantly be thinking about that question I posed at the beginning. What will this look like for future generations? Is there anything we're missing? The more we ask, the more we understand. The more we provide regulations based on that understanding, the cleaner and healthier we will be. Growing up in Utah, I had three siblings. We had fun most of the time, but we also fought a lot and made a bunch of messes as kids do. I remember my mom telling me to clean up the basement after we'd thrown toys everywhere. I would whine and fuss and cry that it wasn't just my mess, it was everyone's. She said she didn't care, do it anyway. That always frustrated me as a kid, but now I see it differently. There's a mess, there's messes everywhere. Maybe you didn't make it, but you probably benefited from it. Let's support ARIPA, an Eastern Pennsylvania Coalition for Abandoned Mine Reclamation. Let's vote for people who will fund these projects. Let's clean it up. What they fail to kind of consider is the fact that if you just do nothing, the problem doesn't go away either. Right. And in fact, it's probably going to be orders of magnitude worse because at a certain point, a large percentage of them end up smoldering, oxidizing, getting hot, and then combusting anyway. So if they're going to burn unmitigated in an inefficient process with no controls, or if they're going to burn in a unit with control measures in place that uh, 
operate at really high degrees of reduction, then I, I mean, in, in my opinion, it's a no-brainer. Remember that nursery rhyme, Old King Cole? I don't think I heard that one, actually. Okay, so Old King Cole is a British nursery rhyme, and it goes, Old King Cole was a merry old soul, was a merry old soul, was he? And he calls for his pipe, and he calls for his bowl, and he calls for his fiddler's tree. So he's just basically having a party, Old King Cole. And it's Cole spelled C-O-L-E. So it's just this happy, merry king who (laughs) wants his fiddlers there to play some music while he smokes and eats. But then Sturgill Simpson turned that into a song called Old King Cole, where he spelled it C-O-A-L. question about what are we going to do? What is old King Cole going to do when the mountains are gone and so are you? And I think that's the question, right? We're talking about reclaiming the land. We are talking about something beautiful and positive about bringing grass back and getting kids a new park and getting rid of all this refuse and using the refuse for electricity in a beneficial way for the community. And there's a lot of it left. What is old King Cole gonna do? AKA, what are we gonna do when the mountains are gone? And so is Cole. Thanks for listening. And we owe a huge thank you to all the people who let us interview them for this episode. To Bobby Hughes of the Eastern PA Coalition for the Abandoned Mine Reclamation, and Christy Sweeney of Aripa. To Alex and Gilberton, thank you for stopping your hard work and showing us around, teaching us all you know about reclaiming coal country. You can find more about these organizations at epcamr.org and arippa.org. And a thank you to the source material we use for research and background for this episode, to the many reports done by the EPA and EIA, and the reporters for Allegheny Front. To the makers, directors, and producers of From the Ashes, available to rent now on Amazon Prime, and to Sturgill Simpson for inspiring us with his version of Old King Cole. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Melissa Wade, and Abby Newhouse. All sound effects and music not recorded by us came from Epidemic Sound. Learn more about this episode at our website, we'reherepodcast.com, at our Instagram at we'rehere.podcast or on Twitter at we underscore re here. Until next week, we're here. <laughs>